From the CIPRI Knowledge Hub and CIPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in the realm of education. I'm Michelle Goodwin. Today, we look at the National School Lunch Program, which provides free or reduced price lunch to more than half of all American public school students each year, based on economic need. For many years, the program has also served as a key indicator for education officials and researchers who have used it to identify low-income populations and direct millions of dollars in funding to support students in need. Title I funds go to school based on free lunch enrollment. So states that fund schools based on their enrollments and then provide extra funds for enrolling poor students always also use free lunch. But a new multi-state study of education records, household income, and census data has found that this key indicator, used for decades to guide vital resources, may not be as valid as it seems. There are poor kids who aren't getting the meals that they ought to be getting, and there are kids who, whose annual income isn't so very low who are enrolling in free introduced lunch. It, when, whenever we're trying to direct resources toward economically disadvantaged students, we've got a problem right now. Yeah. We're not doing it well. Today, we welcome the lead author of that study, University of North Carolina researcher Thad Domina. Domina sits down with CPRI Research Director Jonathan Sapovitz to discuss his findings, which include a surprising correlation between lunch program enrollment and student achievement. This is Jonathan Sapovitz from the CPRI Knowledge Hub, and I'm here with Thad Domina, who's an Associate Professor of Educational Policy and Sociology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome, Thad. Hey, thanks for having me. You and six other co-authors, including Nicholas Faris Courage of the United States Census Bureau, just published an article in September of 2018 in Educational Researcher, and it was called, Is Free and Reduced Price Lunch a Valid Measure of Educational Disadvantage? This caught my eye because virtually every quantitative evaluation that I see of student impacts of a policy or a program uses student receipt of free and reduced lunch as an indicator of poverty in their analysis. It's a really common way to control for or try to adjust for differences in student poverty rates. That's important because it, it, it's an effort to isolate the impacts of the program or the policy. Just to start off, can you just tell us a little bit about this, this free and reduced lunch indicator and where it comes from and, and what its history is? I went looked at a decade's worth of Ed researcher articles. There were 58, I believe, that used some measure of uh, socioeconomic background for kids or schools, uh, and like 70, 70% of them used free, free and reduced launch. It's everywhere in our research. And of course, its origins have nothing to do with research. In 1946, after World War II, the military complained they were worried because they realized that far too many uh, recruits that they were bringing in were malnourished and they were worried about extreme poverty, not because they were worried about inequality, but because they were worried about having a fighting force. So there was an idea that we ought to do something about nutrition and particularly child nutrition. And so the National School Lunch Program was born uh, in 46 as a, as a sort of a national effort to make sure that kids at least have one good meal during the time in which they're in school. From the beginning, the school lunch program was means tested. So we don't give free lunch to every kid in, our, in, in American schools. We give free lunch to kids who are poor or near poor. Eligibility is pegged around the federal poverty line. And so if you uh, come from a household where your annual income, where you report an annual income that's less than 185% of poverty, you qualify for reduced price lunch. And if your household income is less than 130% of poverty, you qualify for free lunch. Off the top of my head, 185% of poverty is around 
$6,000 and 130 times poverty is around $25,000. So we're not talking about eligibility for the truly poor, but for sort of lower middle class and below. How many kids receive this? There are 30 million kids annually who get lunch at school. About 55%, uh, I think, of American public school kids receive free or reduced price lunch at a given point. Do parents have to sign up? Yep. When you enroll your kid in school in the fall, you'll usually get something home with them or in the mail, a form that asks you to report your income. So you report your income in continuous dollars based on your last month's income. It's prescriptive. It describes income from various sources, earnings, farm, business. So it's a a fairly broad definition of, of what your household income is. And based on that report, schools formulaically determine who's eligible and enroll people. In most of the research that I've done, I can go to a district and I can ask for background characteristics on kids, and that would include their receipt of lunch assistance or free and reduced lunch. But you had some other data that you used in your study. So can you talk a little bit about the data that you have? Particularly since No Child Left Behind, we've got annual measures for every kid on particularly test score measures, and we have very thin measures of kids' backgrounds. The way I think about it is we know an awful lot, maybe not everything we'd want to know, but we know an awful lot about what kids experience when they're in school, or at least what it does in terms of their test scores. We know who their peers are in their classroom. We can see their teachers and so on. A lot much more than we did even when I started doing this work you know, 15 years ago. But that's all confined to the nine months that kids are in school and the, and the six or seven hours a day. In these administrative data, we know nothing about the world that the kids come from in early childhood. And we also know nothing about the world that they graduate to, you know, and the connections between their schooling experience via these administrative data. So this incredibly powerful resource, but it's got this sort of limited view in terms of kids in their context. Because of that sort of frustration or coming out of that frustration, I started having conversations with um, folks at the U.S. Census Bureau, um, particularly a branch of the Census Bureau called CARA. Their job in the sort of business of the Census Bureau is to bring in data from across the federal bureaucracy from all different agencies to safely store those data. They go data go in, they don't go out. And in particular, their job is to find ways to learn about learn about the American population so that we don't have to ask questions on the census, just to make the census cheaper. That's their central mission and their social scientists and their demographers in particular. Um, and so as a secondary part of their mission is to conduct research. So we started talking. So we worked on partnership agendas with a few districts in California, eventually with the state of Oregon, that allowed us to bring the data into census and to make these links happen. So you ended up having data on free and reduced lunch from schools and on family income from the Census Bureau. And you looked at the relationship between free and reduced lunch and family income, and then free and reduced lunch and family income and student achievement. And you you found some surprising things. I'm hoping that you can tell us, unravel the puzzle a little bit here and explain the relationships that you found. At the kid level, we linked the kid records to kids, IRS, household income, annual tax filings. We created the sum of all of the all of the income that anybody from that kid's house filed to the IRS so that we would have a continuous measure of household income. And then so what we wanted to know is how well do, do these free and reduced launch categories describe the variation in household income? And we kind of knew going in that it wasn't going to be very well, right? Because by definition, free launch takes this continuous thing, household income, and chunks it into at best three groups, right? No free launch, reduced price launch, which means 1.3 to 1.85 poverty, 
and free lunch, which takes everybody from the very poor to the reasonably poor and puts them in one category. So we knew it wasn't going to be good, but we wanted to know how not good. And what we found was just a huge amount of dispersion in income within each of those three categories. And so concretely, as we expected, the free lunch kids were on average quite a bit poorer than the kids who'd received no free or reduced price lunch. But about a third of the free lunch kids had household incomes. So kids who who enrolled in free lunch had household incomes that were annual household incomes that were higher than two times poverty. And about 15% of the kids who received no lunch assistance had household incomes that were below the level that meant that they should have been qualified for free or reduced price lunch. So it was a two-sided error, right? There are are poor kids who aren't getting the meals that they ought to be getting. And there are kids whose annual income isn't so very low who are enrolling in free and reduced price lunch. Before we go to other results, what do you make of that? Maybe there's a stigma attached to receiving lunch in schools. And so even if kids are eligible, they might not want their parents to report them as eligible. So what are some of the things that you think are going on behind that? I think that's a big part of it, particularly a part about the under-enrollment. I think that there are families that are, you know, poor but proud or who just don't believe in accepting federal support or don't get the application handed to them. We hear stories when you talk to school leaders about families who are worried about applying, who are worried about documentation, about immigration status, you know, worries that are unjustified, right, uh, under the law, but that are, um, but are very real. On the other side of the coin, I think there are a few things going on. One is since the 90s, the free lunch program has really tried to take down barriers to improve access to free lunch. And so it's created programs where in high poverty schools, kids can enroll this year and remain enrolled next year and even for two or three years into the future. So there are, there are programs that, that are helping to get people enrolled and reduce the administrative burden, but that are also creating noise. And then another piece that I don't think that I hadn't thought about enough, but I think it's really an important part of people's lives, poor people's lives and near poor people's lives is income volatility. So the way the rules are written for free and reduced lunch is that you qualify based on your last month's um, household income. You can qualify anytime during the school year. And if your household income gets better, if you if you get a job and your income rises, you can remain qualified. So I think that a lot of the sort of higher income people who are in the program are probably sent from families where household income is fairly volatile um, and they enroll during lean periods and stay in the program. So now the second part of your analysis was to look at the relationship between family income, I guess, relative to free and reduced lunch as it related to student achievement, what we always look at as an outcome of student performance. And so what did you find when you compared the relative predictive power of these two indicators of student achievement? Yeah, this is a shocker for me. There are two ways to think about whether or not a measure is valid. One is what's called convergent validity. Does it mesh well with something else that measures the same general construct, the same idea? And that was this analysis of the relationship between income and free lunch enrollment. We found it really had very little convergence of validity. The second one was what's called predictive validity. We, we know that poor kids, we don't think they should. We know that they do tend to perform less well than their peers on standardized tests. How predictive is free lunch of achievement? And what kind of information does it give net of household income? So my thinking doing this analysis is I sort of sat down and you know entered the code and, and waited for the numbers to come up. My prediction would have been that 
because free lunch is capturing household income, but capturing it poorly, if we look at, at the relationship between free lunch and achievement net of household income, it would wash it away, right? That household income would be the thing that predicted, and this poor measure of household income free lunch wouldn't predict achievement. That was my guess, and that's not at all what we found. We found that household income matters net of free lunch, but that kids who receive free and reduced price lunch were doing worse than kids for, with similar annual IRS reported household income, net of the household income and net of a bunch of other controls. We couldn't make that go away. The free lunch was providing information about kids' academic experiences or their achievement, but household income didn't. I still don't know entirely what to make of that. So you put those two findings together, what you learn is that free lunch is a pretty poor measure of socioeconomic disadvantage, but a better measure of some nebulous thing that I don't understand that's educational disadvantage than household income. Does this lead you to believe that we should that we should continue to use free and reduced lunch or should we try and make census block connections and try to use family income as or, or block income or whatever as a control for trying to look at the relationship between programs and policies and student outcomes? I don't think we can continue to use free and lunch, free and reduced lunch in the long term. Because of those programs that I was telling you about, um, provision one, provision two, provision three, and then a new big program that's called community eligibility, which is a program that allows schools that enroll lots of poor students. It allows them to offer free lunch to every kid in the school for free, regardless of eligibility. So community eligibility is going to gain steam. It's only three or four years old, but something like half of the eligible schools are now participating with good reason. It's an exciting program. But what it's going to mean is that the urgency of collecting these data, of getting kids to enroll for schools, is going to decline. So the data quality problems about free lunch we see here, our data predate that program. Those data quality problems are only going to get worse. So I don't think we can keep using these data going forward, but I don't know what the alternative is, to tell you the truth. And let me tell you that, I, like, just as, a, as an aside, that there's a problem that's bigger than the one that matters to educational researchers, but it's also a problem for educational policy because Title I funds go to school based on free lunch enrollment. States that have weighted per pupil funding, so states that fund schools based on, on their enrollments and then provide extra funds for enrolling poor students always also use free lunch. It's not just for us, for the research community, that's the measure that we're going to need to find a way around the measure. It's also for policy. It, when, whenever we're trying to direct resources toward economically disadvantaged students, we've got a problem right now. Yeah. We're not doing it well. That's a big insight that this program, which has been around since 1946, there's been all kinds of layers of decisions attached to this particular fairly crude indicator of students' levels of poverty or their families' levels of poverty, and that this is kind of deeply enmeshed in the system. And so it has implications for our ability to do good research, but even more importantly, for policymakers and their ability to administer wisely different programs and resources. Yeah, no, I mean, it seems like it's a crucial issue. I mean, I think in education, many of us, all of us care deeply about inequality, right? And we see our job is to sort of try to make a more equal society. And I don't, I just don't think we can do that job well if we're not measuring socioeconomic inequality in our schools better than we are. Yeah. And, but this is the point where I get like, I have to throw up my hands because I don't really know a, a good alternative. Now that you have access to these data, what are the things that you hope to do next? What's in the pipeline? Well, I'm really interested in the free lunch program. It's a thing to think about. We don't know a lot about the relationship between receiving free lunch 
and kids' development in school. I know, you know, from the literature that malnutrition is horrible for kids, right? So getting meals to kids who need meals is, is, is incredibly important. But I also know from spending time in school that the way free lunch is often administered does carry stigma. So if you spend time in an elementary school that's socioeconomically diverse, what you'll often see when you're in the lunchroom is the kids who bring their lunch from home go and sit down first, while the kids who buy lunch or receive lunch, hot lunch from school, stand in line. In many diverse schools, socioeconomically diverse schools, that's just overlaid with class. You know, no one would eat school lunch if they didn't have to, right? The way we do school lunch today. And so that creates the social distance between the poor and the non-poor kids. And so I'm not convinced that the way we administer school lunch helps kids and helps the kids that it's intended to help. And so that's something that I'm interested in studying. Uh, and then another piece of, of the work that we're doing, because we can see teachers as they move around across schools, and we can also see what teacher labor markets look like. What happens to teachers when they leave teaching? Are they leaving to go to you know better jobs? Are they leaving to go to places to teach in places where the pay is higher? Are they leaving to go to places where the living is cheaper? You know, what, is, what do teacher life courses look like? I love the way that you have taken this measure of free and reduced lunch and you're following the breadcrumbs, so to speak, and trying to unravel some of the really important social and policy problems that are either impeded or made available by the access to these and other data. And so um, I've really appreciated our conversation and I hope that we can continue it as you produce more, more findings from you and your team. So Thad Domina from UNC Chapel Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe, visit us at cprehub.org. That's C-P-R-E-Hub.org. To share your thoughts on today's episode or suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. We look forward to you joining the conversation.